We are in Isaiah 1, and this first chapter, as is the second chapter, is addressed to Judah and Jerusalem. And he's upset with the fact that they are doing the form of worship, but the society has become corrupt, so that even though they're doing the form of worship, it is not anything that he's pleased with. So we're down to verse 21, how the faithful city has become a whore. She who was full of justice, righteousness lodged in her, but now murderers. The faithful city we're talking about here is Jerusalem. And one of the things that Jeremiah talks about, and to put in perspective, Jeremiah and Isaiah are a hundred years apart. You have Isaiah talking before the exile of the northern kingdom, and then you have Jeremiah talking during the exile of the southern kingdom to Babylon. And one of the things that Jeremiah says about Jerusalem before they go into exile is that people are putting their trust in form. So, for example, they look at the temple and they say, the temple of the Lord, that will protect us. And what God says through Jeremiah is the temple of the Lord has become a den of robbers. And it's become a place that you run to hide out, which is to say it's like a hideout in the mountains. So when you've committed your crimes, you run to your hideout, and you're not going to your hideout to repent. You're going to your hideout simply to be protected. And so what Jeremiah says is the temple has been like such a refuge for you where you run off to hide after committing your crimes and you're putting your trust in something that is not trustworthy. It is in fact the temple of the Lord, but it has ceased to be a protection to you because of your behavior. Isaiah is saying here much the same thing. How the faithful city has become a whore, she who is full of justice, righteousness lodged in her, but now murderers. Your silver has become drosh, your best wine mixed with waters, your princes are rebels and companions of thieves. Everyone loves a bribe and runs after gifts. They do not bring justice to the fatherless, and the widow's cause does not come to them. So what he's describing is something that I would very much describe like Washington, D.C. right now. The folks in Washington, D.C. are serving the folks in Washington, D.C., and they've lost track of who they're supposed to be serving. And what Isaiah is saying here is Jerusalem, which is the capital city, has become full of officials and leaders who are only interested in enriching themselves and are not interested in serving the people of whom they were appointed leaders. Monarchy at this point. So a prince would be a leader and the nobles would be leaders. And the idea is that they are princes and nobles because they got government functions. And the purpose of the government is, should be to run the country in an orderly way for the benefit of the people. That should be the goal. And what Isaiah is saying here is these folks have fallen into taking bribes. And they are not, in fact, doing justice, especially not to the people I care about, which are the helpless. And remember we talked last time that God's poster child for helplessness are the stranger, the orphan, and the widow because they don't have anybody to watch after them. So 
the fact that that's not going on here in Jerusalem is something that annoys God. So verse 24, Therefore the Lord declares, the Lord of hosts, the mighty one of Israel, Ah, I will get relief from my enemies and avenge myself on my foes. I will turn my hand against you and will smelt away your dross as with lye and remove all your alloy. And I will restore your judges as at the first and your counselors as at the beginning. Afterward, you shall be called the city of righteousness, a faithful city. So one of the metaphors that shows up lots of places in Scripture In fact, I think it's the subject of a fairly popular modern Christian song called Refiner's Fire. And the idea is that God will be a refiner, which is to say he will refine Israel and Jerusalem and will burn out those who are fattening themselves off the sheep. And when he does that, then the city will once again be righteous, as it was before. So 27. Zion shall be redeemed by justice, and those in her who repent by righteousness. So what he's saying is, Zion is another name for Jerusalem, on Mount Zion, and the redemption of Zion will be when justice is restored, and those who repent by righteousness, which is to say, It is possible for those in Jerusalem to repent, and if they do repent and behave righteously, they will be redeemed. There's a sequence to prophecy. So what you'll see in virtually all of the prophets is God sends a prophet, and the first time he shows up, the prophet warns everybody. And what he does is he says, all right, this is the thing that God has got against you. Therefore, repent. And if the people repent, good. The warning has served its purpose. God says, hey, you guys are off track. This is where you're off track. This is what you need to do to get back on track. And if they do that, then the prophet served his purpose and, and that's it. If, however, they don't do that, which is the more normal case, what they normally do is get chapped at the prophets. And then what happens is the prophet switches into speaking proverbs or code speak. So he goes into very flowery, poetic language, and Yeshua is sort of the prime example of this. The first thing that Yeshua says at the beginning of his ministry is repent, and argues with people and gives them good reasons to repent. And then in Matthew 12, they attribute the signs and wonders that he does to Beelzebub. At that point, he switches from a call to repentance to speaking in Proverbs, where he tells the truth, but he tells it in a way that they will not understand because he has decided, or God has decided, that, okay, these guys are not going to repent. They're going to go into exile. But I've still got some stuff to say to them so that when they are in exile, they can look back at the things that I said and they will understand what they need to correct. Isaiah does the same thing. So in chapter 1, what he's doing is he's laying out the case against Judah and Jerusalem, and he is saying, repent. Judah and Jerusalem, in fact, do repent, and they last another hundred years. Israel, the northern kingdom, does not repent, and they go into exile. 
So this first one where he's laying out all the things that are wrong with Judah and Jerusalem, it is by way of a call to repentance. What he says specifically in here is, Zion shall be redeemed by justice and those in her who repent by righteousness. If you listen to what I'm talking about and you repent and you become righteous, you will be redeemed. This is the warning phase of prophecy to Judah and Jerusalem. So verse 28, But rebels and sinners shall be broken together, and those who forsake the Lord shall be consumed. For they shall be ashamed of the oaks that you desired, and you shall blush for the gardens that you have chosen. For you shall be like an oak whose leaf withers, and like a garden without water. And the strong shall become tender, and his work a spark. And both of them shall burn together with none to quench them. They shall be ashamed of the oaks and the gardens. What we're talking about is idol worship. The high places, if you will, the sacred groves, places where you go off into the woods and worship pagan gods. That's what we're talking about here. And so he says, They shall be ashamed of the oaks that you desired, and you shall blush for the gardens that you have chosen. Remember, one of the things that Moses tells Joshua is when you go into the land, you are to tear down their high places, and you are to cut down their sacred groves, and you are to destroy their sacred trees. One way to look at it is if you are in the Pacific Northwest, we're talking about totem poles. Totem poles would fall in that category, things that are set up in the woods for worship. So that's what we're talking about here. So the idea is, if you repent, well, if you do not repent, this is what's going to happen. In Isaiah, understand becomes a key word because what the prophet is doing is giving a warning. And he's saying, you guys need to understand, A, what's wrong, B, how to correct it, and C, what's going to happen if you don't. Chapter 2. The word that Isaiah, the son of Amos, saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. So this is the same thing way chapter 1 led, but this is a different prophecy. It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains, and shall be lifted up above the hills, and all the nations shall flow to it. And many people shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways, that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the Torah, and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. And again, this is one we sing very often, obviously a direct quote out of Isaiah. And what he is saying is, that isn't what's going on now. That is something that will go on in the future. In fact, there are a considerable number of rabbis who say that that prophecy is being fulfilled now. Because what you literally have are now worldwide networks of yeshivas that all connect back to Jerusalem. So in their view, this is being done right now. In Christian view, it is somewhat later. I don't know that normal Christian theologians would say what's going on right now would be a fulfillment of this because what you don't have right now is the whole world coming back to Jerusalem to learn. And this sort of implies that the nations, if you will, are going to come up to Jerusalem to learn 
And I think Christians see that as being yet future. The question is, what does God mean by the nations here? First, straight-up definition is the nations are everybody who is not Israel. And what we're talking about in Christian theology, as I understand it, and I believe it, one of the things that's going to happen in the new heaven and the new earth is the nations are going to exist, and Israel is going to be within Jerusalem. And so people are going to come up to Jerusalem because if they don't, they don't get any rain. So all of the nations come to Jerusalem. These are not non-believers, as I understand it. These are people who have made it past the lake of fire and in the new heaven and the new earth, but they are not Israel. Israel is not the only people who will be saved. In Revelation, it says that the nations will be in the new heaven and the new earth. And the nations biblically means everybody but Israel. What I'm saying and what Revelation says is in the new heaven and the new earth, you'll have the new Jerusalem coming down from the heaven, adorned like a bride and so forth. And you have the gates with the 12 tribes and all that kind of stuff. And Israel will be in the new Jerusalem. You will have around it the nations who are not Israel. The way I describe it is these are nations who have made it past the lake of fire are in the new heaven and the new earth. So they absolutely believe in God, but they are not Israel. This may be the thousand-year reign. It's entirely possible this is the thousand-year reign. It's also possible it's the new heaven and the new earth. But one of the things that comes up is the idea of replacement theology. And replacement theology is the doctrine of the Sunday church that says Israel blew it. So after the coming of Christ, all of the promises that are due to Israel now go to the church, capital T, capital C. All the curses go to the Jews, but all the promises come to the church. I don't believe in replacement theology. As I read Revelation and Peter and Hebrews, all those books, I see that Israel is going to be redeemed. Ephraim and Judah are going to come back together. That's your two-house business. And they are going to be God's people. And they will continue to be God's people, even in the new heaven and the new earth. So there are going to be lots and lots of people who are going to make it past the lake of fire. Presbyterians, Baptists, Catholics. There's going to be all sorts of people that make it past the lake of fire. And they will be in the new heaven and the new earth, but they will not be Israel. So... Verse 4 now, he shall judge between the nations and shall decide disputes for many peoples. And they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. This, by the way, is a reversal of Joel 3, verse 9. So I'm in Joel 3, 9. Proclaim this among the nations. Consecrate for war. Stir up the mighty men. Let all the men of war draw near. Let them come up. Beat your plowshares into swords and your pruning hooks into spears. Let the weak say, I am a warrior. Hasten and come, all you surrounding nations, and gather yourselves there. Bring down your warriors, O Lord. Let the nations stir themselves up and come to the valley of Jehoshaphat. For there I will sit to judge all the surrounding nations. That 
says, all right, all you nations, let's get it on. Get all your weapons, make all your stuff, and come on. That's what God is saying there. Bring it, because I will bring you into the valley of Jehoshaphat, and we're going to have a come-to-Jesus meeting. Here in Isaiah, it says, say to the nations, beat your swords into plowshares and your spears into pruning hooks, which is the reverse of that. So what we have in Isaiah 2 is, if you will, peace. And God or the Messiah, one or the other, and I believe they're the same being, God or the Messiah is judging among the nations in Isaiah in peace. Much like Moses judged the people, where Moses is sitting on a stump all day long and everybody's bringing their disputes to him. And, of course, Jethro tells him, wait a minute, guy, you're going to burn yourself out and you're going to burn them out. So what we have here in chapter 2, if you will, is God judging the nations in peace. And what you have in Joel is God judging the nations in war. In Isaiah 2, I can see this applying to the millennial reign. I can also see it applying to the new heaven and the new earth. Because one of the things that happens in the millennial reign is after the thousand years, the nations gather themselves and attack Jerusalem. So not sure which way this goes. I can see it either way. O house of Jacob, come let us walk in the light of the Lord. Now notice we started off with Judah and Jerusalem. And now we have popped up to house of Jacob. So you've got the southern kingdom in Jerusalem, their capital, but now we're popped up to the house of Jacob, which is all of Israel. And furthermore, in the Bible, Jacob and Israel are the two names of the same guy. And you can sort of get an idea of what God's attitude is, depending on whether he's called Jacob or Israel. When he's called Jacob, things are a little bit flaky. When he's called Israel, he is walking in the way that he should except when he's called Israel in the northern kingdom sense. So when we talk about Israel as the whole nation, typically things are okay. Sort of like, you know, when you call your two-year-old John Jacob Timothy, you know that he's in trouble. Middle names are a key. So Jacob is sort of that way. So, O house of Jacob, come let us walk in the light of the Lord, for you have rejected your people, the house of Jacob, because they are full of things from the east, and of fortune tellers like the Philistines, and they strike hands with the children of foreigners. So this is not good. And one of the things, quite frankly, this is going to sound anti-Semitic and it isn't, seem to be characteristic of Jews is they are very interested in lots of different spiritual traditions. And they wander off and they do Buddhism and they wander off and they do this, that, and the other thing. And I'm sort of suspecting, and this is, again, Johnnyology with no scripture, that since their job is to be so close to God, that they've got a spiritual itch that they just need to scratch. So they tend to wander all over the place. And what it's saying here in Isaiah is, guys, you just brought in all of this stuff from the other nations. You know, you got fortune tellers and all that kind of garbage, and it's led you away from me. So God is upset with Jacob here. They strike hands with the children of foreigners. Their land is filled with silver and gold, and there is no end to their treasures. Their land is filled with horses, and there is no end to their chariots. Their land is filled with idols. They bow down to the work of their hands, 
to what their fingers have made. What we are describing here right now is the United States. There is no end to our treasure. We are the richest nation in the history of humanity, yet we are spiritually adrift and bereft. And we strike hands with foreigners and we got things from the East and fortune tellers and Philistines and all that kind of stuff. And the religion of the Bible is under assault in the United States. And the reason for that is because of the wealth that we have. As you get a certain degree of wealth, you lose your fear of God because you get the sense that you can get by without him. And getting by without him is very attractive because you don't have to follow him in his rules. We can be really wealthy and we don't have to mess with his rules and our wealth will protect us. Verse 9, so man is humbled and each one is brought low. Do not forgive him. Enter into the rock and hide in the dust from before the terror of the Lord and from the splendor of his majesty. The haughty looks of man shall be brought low and the lofty pride of men shall be humbled and the Lord alone will be exalted in that day. One of the things that happens in Revelation is the kings of the earth hide in caves. So the idea here is when the end comes and Yeshua finally asserts his kingship on earth, there's going to be a whole lot of people brought low. As I read this, the only thing I can think of is the kings of the earth and their leaders hiding in the caves from the stuff that's falling from the sky. 